Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to this word being preached. We started last week with, um, with a new sermon series. We were talking about the fact that beginning of the year, it's sort of traditional for people to talk about New Year's resolutions and to sort of reevaluate their lives and sort of think, where do I want to grow? Where do I want to change? Where do I want to sort of, you know, do better this coming year? And uh, in some ways, that's a very good uh, sort of approach and uh, reflex that we have at the beginning of something new. We want to we make changes. We want to make New Year's resolutions at the beginning of, of every year. But the reality is, according to the statistics, apparently about 80% of New Year's resolutions fail. And um, we were talking about some of the reasons why they fail, and I think we came up with some, some good reasons. And one of the reasons that I wanted to focus on was the fact that so often we try and change our behaviors, but we don't incorporate that behavior change as habits into our lives. In, in sports, uh, some of the best sports coaches will tell you, I mean, there's this sort of, um, what do you call it, this sort of popular idea that, you know, if you want to accomplish something, then you must visualize it. You must visualize yourself having accomplished it, you know, and celebrating it and the end goal and so on. And apparently, according to research, that doesn't actually work that well. Because, you know, when you visualize yourself having accomplished it, you know, you already get that sort of endorphin release and that sort of, you know, happy moment. Uh, and then you sort of, ah, you know, uh, <laughs> I already sort of had the feeling, you know, I don't want to go for it. So um, in sports, they actually don't coach top professional players to visualize the product. They coach them to visualize the process. In other words, what am I going to do in order to get there. That's what they focus on. Uh, and so often, we, in our news resolutions, we have a product focus. What is the goal? What is the outcome? Where do I want to get? And that's all good and well. We must have that sort of in mind, but that shouldn't be our focus, I don't think. Our focus shouldn't be the product, but the process, the process of getting there. And that's why it's powerful to focus on habits. So um, just by way of a little introduction... What are habits? Habits are a form of inertia. And, and here I'm using sort of the language of science. Those of you who've studied science at school or at university will know there's Newton's laws. And Newton's law says that objects with weight have inertia. So in other words, if they're moving in a certain direction, then they'll keep on moving in that direction unless some other force acts upon them. Okay? So... You know, if you take a ball and you roll it, it'll eventually stop rolling because the force of gravity is, and, and, and um, friction is working on it. Uh, but if you take the same ball and you throw it in space where there's no gravity, it'll just keep going in a straight line unless, you know, some other force works on it. And habits are like a form of human or psychological inertia. When we get going in a certain direction, it's hard to change direction or to stop. It's maybe hard to get going. You know, you feel like one of those big trucks, you know, that with a diesel engine, you know, <laughs> you know, when you want to break an old habit and, and establish a new habit, you feel like you have it, you know, you're, a, you're, a, you're like the Titanic. You're, you're sort of slow to get going. <laughs> but once you're going, and once that habit is established, it's also difficult to break. And that's the power of habit. Yes, it is difficult to make a habit, but it's just as difficult to break a habit. 
And ultimately, uh, research has shown that a very high percentage of what we do on a daily basis is actually done, not consciously, but by force of habit. If you think about just your morning routine, getting up, some of you have a habit of sort of killing the, 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 the clock and then sleeping, turning around and sleeping further. That's a habit, <laughs> okay? But when you get up, you know, whatever your routine is, you know, whether you're going to the bathroom and uh, first brush your teeth and then jump into the shower or, I mean, you, you don't really think about, you know, taking the, the toothbrush in and, and which hand should I take the toothbrush again? Is it the left hand or the right hand? And then, you know, opening the, the, the and how am I going to open the, the toothpaste while I've got the toothbrush in my hand? And, and how much toothpaste am I going to put on the toothbrush? And then how am I going to brush? You don't concentrate on that. You've been doing that for so long, it just comes automatically. You just, if you're right, I just grab the toothbrush with my right hand and then I sort of hold it in these fingers and then with these two I open the toothpaste, squirt on the toothpaste, close it again, stick it back and start you know, brushing, and I have a certain sort of pattern in which I brush. I start here, on top, inside, well, first on the outside, and then on top, inside, all the way around the the bottom, and then the top, and I brush my tongue. I don't know if you guys do that. (laughs) Helps with a nice, fresh breath, you know. But I, I do most of that without thinking about it, without having to concentrate on it, because I've been doing it so long, and that's God's grace, because if we had to con- consciously concentrate on everything we do, did all the time, you, you get like mental fatigue, you know, with all the decisions you have to make. Same thing when you, when you just start learning, you have to consciously um, think about driving the car. And, 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 and there's, a, there's a, a model of habits, and, and maybe I can just quickly mention this, it's called the conscious competence model. You start with, at the place of unconscious incompetence. So you're incompetent in the area, but you don't really know about it, so you're not even aware of the area. So let's t- say driving a car, you know, when, you, when you're a kid, you know, a small baby, that's not even on your radar. And then you start seeing, you know, daddy and mama, mommy driving cars, and all of a sudden it's on your radar, and you go from unconscious incompetence to conscious incompetence. You know, you're still incompetent, you still can't drive a car, but at least you're aware of the whole issue of driving and so on. And then eventually, you know, you go and you get your learners, you know, you write it, um, and you, you maybe go for a few lessons and you start to develop conscious competence. And, and in the beginning, it's a bit difficult, you know. It's, it's hard, you know. You, you struggle with the, with the petrol and the clutch, you know, how, how to sort of coordinate them. And, um, you know, all the, you know, observation, you know, mirror, you know, blind spot, mirror, mirror, you know, all that kind of stuff, you know. It's, it's a bit overwhelming, everything that you have to do at once. And the reason why it's overwhelming is because you have to consciously concentrate on it. Because you, you've moved from conscious incompetence to conscious competence. But, but, but you only really start learning to drive once you've got your license and you can actually drive, you know. That first couple of weeks, you're a bit dangerous, you know. You're on the road, but you, your, your hand-eye coordination is not that great. But eventually, after a couple of years of, 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 of driving, I mean, when you pull out of the, the driveway, it, there's really, if you think about it, there's actually so much that you have to do. I mean, firstly, you've got to, like, get in the car, then you like put it on your seatbelt, you turn the key, get the car started, then you check if your mirrors are, are right, you know, uh, then you press the button to open the gate, then you put it in gear, while you're pressing with your foot, you're pressing the clutch and put it in gear, and then you release the clutch slowly and, and start stepping on the, uh, on the accelerator, uh, but, but not too much, so you sort of slowly back out of the driveway, and 
You know, in the beginning it would be difficult, but, but eventually you so, you know, it comes so naturally because you've gone from conscious competence to unconscious competence, where it's become a habit. You know, you can concentrate on other stuff. You can shout at your kids because they're fighting you at the back and, and fiddling with the radio or so, stuff like that. You can think about all kinds of other stuff. And sometimes you find yourself after 20, 30 minutes, you arrive at work and you think like, how do I get here? Force of habit. And why I'm saying all of that is to show you that a large percentage, research differs. You know, some say at least the conservative, the most conservative estimates are about 42 you know, 50%. But some people say up to 80% of what we do on a daily basis is habit. Unconscious competence that we do automatically. And that's where that saying comes from. So a thought, reap a action. So a action, reap a habit. If you sow an action regularly enough, you reap a habit. So a habit, reap a character. So a character, reap a destiny. And um, habits can also help us uh, to remember things that we will usually forget. And I'll, I'll tell a story now to, to sort of illustrate the power of habit in terms of, of helping us remember. Um, but I, I was sort of basing what I was saying in terms of habits, uh, or I'm going to be basing what I'm saying on habits, on uh, Acts 2 verse 42, where it says, and they devoted themselves. So the de- vo- devoted, you know, speaks about habits that they developed themselves. Notice it's plural, so this is a, a community pursuing habits together, like us. Uh, to the apostles' teaching, okay, and that's what we uh, spoke about last week. So please, if you um, weren't here last week, we're still uh, you know, at the coast on holiday or whatever, enjoying yourself, working on your tan, please go and download the podcast. Um, you can just go to a podcast app and just search Shofar Joburg Sermons or something like that, and, and, and you should be able to find it. You can subscribe to it if you want to. Or you can just go to shofaronline.org or shofarsermons.org uh, uh, and, and, and go and find the sermons there if you want to download it. So, so the apostles' teaching, so a, a habit of learning together. Um, the fellowship, a habit of being together. Uh, breaking of bread, that's what we're going to talk about uh, this morning. A habit of remembering together and eating together. It's sort of a double habit. And then uh, the prayers. Uh, notice it's prayers, plural, the prayers. So it's, it's not just praying it's not just a habit of praying it's a habit of praying together uh, so habits of learning together being together eating and remembering together and praying uh, together so before I go there let me just uh, tell you a little story just to show you the, the power that habit has now on one hand the idea of habits is that they in a sense help you to remember without having to Focus on the remembering or try to remember. Okay? Um, but on the other hand, there is also, it's also important that we actually consciously remember certain things. Any sort of self help guru, if you go and look at just sort of, you know, you walk into Wordsworth or one of those places and you go to the self help section. Uh, a, a friend, Corne uh, Becker, he always says when he, when he finds like, self-help books in the Christian section, he, he takes them out and he puts them where they belong, in the fantasy section. <laughs> it says there's no such thing as Christian self-help, you know. The, the, the whole message of Christianity is that we cannot help ourselves. God needs to help us. But um, be that as it may, um, you, know, you, you know, anyone who talks about goals, about productivity, all that kind of stuff, 
they will tell you it's important to remember. It, one of our problems as human beings is we so easily go on autopilot. So, so in that sense, just normal habits and just sort of cruising can become a problem. Uh, and, and we need habits on the one hand so that we can forget about doing it and just do it automatically. But then we also need a habit of remembering that can help us to, make, to become conscious of certain things on a regular basis. So, so most guys will say... Um, you know, you, you need a, a, a motive. So daily you need to maybe write out, um, say, a, a vision statement or a goal that you have, a mission statement for your life, you know, uh, who you are, what you want to do, and then why you want to do it. Who you are, identity, what you want to do, your mission, vision, that kind of stuff, um, and your motive, why you want to do it, your motive for doing it. And, and I think that in, in many ways, that's good advice. It's good, uh, you know, so they say, you know, write it out on a piece of paper, stick it to your fridge or whatever, and then daily remind yourself, read through it, and con- make it conscious. Say, this is who I am, um, this is what I want to do, and this is why I want to do it, okay? Of course, the problem with most of those self-help gurus is that they cannot help you decide what is the right thing to do and give you the best motive for it. So you might end up doing the wrong thing very effectively, So you might be very efficient at climbing the ladder to success just to discover at the end of your life it was leaning against the wrong wall. So, of course, you don't want that. (laughs) But obviously God helps us a lot more with that. So what I'm trying to say is that we need habits that remind us, that make certain things that we tend to forget, certain times when we tend to go on autopilot on a regular basis, just brings us back and makes conscious reminds us of, of, of that. So, so breaking of bread is one of those things, a very powerful tool of remembering. And it's, 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 it's twofold. Um, on the one hand, breaking bread is literally eating together. So there's a fellowship aspect to it. But that eating, the Lord's table communion, and we're going to have communion at the end of the service, um, also is a powerful form of remembering but not just remembering cognitively, but, but actually doing things. Um, do this in remembrance of me. You're doing something in order to remember. So you're participating in what you're remembering. So uh, let, me, let me just say a few things about that. Um, firstly, in, in Luke 22, where Jesus institutes the, the communion or the Lord's Supper, it says in verse 14... And when the hour came, he reclined at table and his apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And we as modern, mostly Gentile Christians, I know there are some, some of you from a Jewish background uh, here were Messianic Jews or Messianic Christians. Um, but most of us are Gentiles, so we don't have that Jewish background. So sometimes we forget that Christianity is actually Jewish in its heart and in its, its, its roots. All, Jesus and his apostles were all Jewish. For the first couple of years, most, if not all of the early Christians were baptized Jews. Okay? So Christianity is basically the fulfillment of Judaism and the Old Covenant, Old Testament. That, that is what it is. And we sometimes forget that. And what we then forget is that... What we live, what we believe, who we are, makes us part of a much bigger story. 
And that's what the Passover is all about. The Passover was an annual reminder for the Jews under the Old Covenant of their story, their big picture story. And their story was, uh, they would usually start the Passover cedar, you know, um, my father was a wandering Aramean, referring back to Abraham. And, and when we do it, we should do the same. We should say, our, my father or our father was a wandering Aramean because we are the descendants of Abraham, spiritually speaking. Even though genetically we aren't in Christ, spiritually speaking, we are the, the true descendants of Abraham. Um, and then they'd say, we. Now, now, even hundreds and even today, thousands of years after the Exodus, Jews at the Passover will still say, we were slaves in Egypt. And God brought us out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. In other words, you remember as though you were part of it because literally their story actually helps us to interpret and understand our story. We were all slaves. They were slaves in Egypt. We're slaves, we were slaves in the world. And God had to come with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and redeem us. And we are on a journey through the desert towards the promised land. And what communion does, if we remember that it's actually based on the Passover, it's the fulfillment of the Passover, is it reminds us, first and foremost, that we're part of a much bigger story. And we cannot make sense of our lives apart from understanding that our, our lives in, as part of a story, a bigger story, a, a so-called meta-narrative. And you cannot change your life effectively unless you change the narrative. Now, some of us have a very anemic or watered-down, reductionistic flow, like the Afrikaans word, flow, pop, <laughs> idea of the big story that we're part of. And, and, and that's why we sometimes struggle to change because we, we're not aware of this big, big story that we're part of, this glorious story that we're part of, and therefore we don't live consistently in line with it. But if we constantly remind ourselves that we're part of a bigger story, then it'll be much easier to live our lives in line with that story. So we need to restory our lives. And that's what communion helps us with. It helps us to remember that we're part of a big story, bigger story, and to interpret our lives in the context of that story. And it helps us to remember that that story started long before we were born and it'll continue long before we're gone. Long, long after we're gone, sorry. And in that sense, we know that we are not the author of the story. So I want to read you a little uh, piece. Um, one of uh, J.R.R. Tolkien um, wrote the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings. Um, and he was a Christian. He actually was one of the guys who helped lead C.S. Lewis uh, to the Lord, the, the famous Christian apologist. And I, and I like him because he was born in Bloemfontein, and that's where I was raised. So he's like <laughs> my homeboy. Ronald, my homeboy from Bloom. Okay. Um, and um, he has this character called Bilbo Baggins in, in The Hobbit and in The Lord of the Rings. Um, and, uh, you know, his, his Christian worldview at some places, you know, he didn't try and write a Christian story. So I'm not saying Hobbit or Lord of the Rings is a Christian story at all. But at places, Tolkien's Christian worldview sort of shines through uh, the books in very interesting ways. Uh, and Bilbo Baggins says, uh, I might find somewhere where I can finish my book, 
I've thought of a nice ending for it. And he lived happily ever after to the end of his days. <laughs> this is what he says to, to Gandalf, one of the, the other main characters in the story. Um, and, and listen to, to what this, this guy says just in comment on that. He says, let's face it, we all wish we, were, we, we could write the scenes of our own stories. Like Bilbo Baggins, we want to, re- to read, and he lived happily ever after to the end of his days. But deep down we know that we're not the author of the events that shapes, uh, shape our lives. Bilbo did not seek and only reluctantly accepted the invitation to adventure that launched his extraordinary tale of risk and reward. And Gandalf expresses... Uh, expressed to Bilbo in the closing conversation of the Hobbit, his quest, uh, as, as Gandalf expressed to Bilbo in the closing conversation of the Hobbit, his quest had been orchestrated by another for a greater purpose. And, and yes, one of the places, for instance, where you can see Tolkien's Christian worldview shining through a little bit in the story, it says, Surely you don't disbelieve the prophecies just because you had a hand in bringing them about yourself? You don't really suppose... Do you? That all your adventures and escapes were managed by mere luck, just for, the soul, for your sole benefit? You are a very fine person, Mr. Baggins, and I am very fond of you. But you are only quite a little fellow in a wild, wide world, after all. Bilbo's adventures, uh, adventure was part of a much bigger story uh, that began long, long before his first breath and would continue well beyond his last This realization elevated rather than minimizing the importance of his part. But this could only happen if Mr. Baggins was honest and humble enough to embrace this important truth. And I want you to get this, because this is is powerful. He says that the big part he played in his small story was only a small part in the big story. The big part you play in your small story is only a small part in God's big story. Psalm 45 is one. The psalmist says, My tongue is the pen of a skillful writer. And he beautifully expresses the reality Bilbo learned and we would do well to recover. Bilbo knew he was not the author but the instrument. The pen does not become arrogant or proud over uh, what, it, uh, what is written on the page. It is honored to have played a part in uh, at all in the creative act. So, communion is supposed to remind us, number one, that we, are, that we are a small part. Even though we play a big part in our small story, we're actually only playing a small part in God's big story. But we are part of that big story. And it's a glorious story. It's, it's epic. Turn to your neighbor and tell them, my story is Epic. <laughs> Because my story is God's story. If you allow God to write you into his story, not just invite him to become part of your little story, but allow him to write you into his big story, then your life will be epic. Because God only writes epic stories. And it reminds us not only that we are part of a big story, God's big story, but it reminds us that God is the one writing the story. I'm not the author. I'm not writing it. God is writing it. You know how much pressure that takes off you? (laughs) Because now all of a sudden you don't have to figure out how to make your life happen. God is in control. You're just the pen. You're involved. And and that's the next point I want to make. We're very much involved. We're not passive. 
Not by a long shot. But we're not in control. God is writing our story. And writing his big story. And we're, he's weaving us into his big story. So, um, sorry, let me go back. Uh, we're, we're just a small part of God's big story. Um, the second thing that it reminds us, and, and here I just want to jump to quickly to First um, Corinthians 11. I'm going to be reading from um, verse 20 um, to about verse 26. It says, Paul speaking to the Corinthian church. Now, he really loved the Corinthian church. They had a good relationship. But, but Paul, I mean, if you, if you had to summarize 1 Corinthians, it's, it's the letter of correction because he's constantly correcting them, you know. You can see he's, he's very fond of them on the one hand, but he's constantly, you know, tapping them over the fingers and saying, you know, you know, concerning this, concerning that, you know. And, and, and here he's talking about um, communion or the Lord's Supper. He says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you, do you not have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord, and that always gets me. Remember that, that Paul, the apostle, never saw Jesus physically while he was on earth. Yet, he says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night uh, that was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It, it gets me that Communion, the Lord's table, was so important that Jesus personally delivered this tradition, which was in line, of course, with the traditions that the, the gospel writers record for us in the gospels. But Jesus himself delivers this tradition to Paul to make sure he gets it and gets it right. So that when he plants churches you know, all across the Greco-Roman world, they'll have this at the very heart of what they do. So he says, you know, Jesus, uh, when he had given thanks, he broke the, the bread and he said, this is my body which is for you, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took uh, the cup after supper saying, in the same way and I was with giving thanks, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And what makes this so amazing is it shows us another thing about this big story that we've become part of. It shows us that we're not the hero of the story. How do you, how do you recognize the hero of a story? He's the one or she's the one that makes the big sacrifice in order to benefit others. Now, what this tells us is, firstly, that we were so guilty... And sinful that Jesus had to die for us. So it shows us that <laughs> not only are we not the hero of the story, we're not the victims in the story either. <laughs> Initially, we're the bad guys. We're the problem. We're part of the problem, not part of the solution. Okay? But, but not only does it show us that, it, it shows us that Jesus gave his body uh, you know, he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Sorry, this, this is my body, which is for you. Now, the, the word therefore in the, in the, in the Greek, um, I think they use the, 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 the uh, preposition 
uh, hooper, which literally means on behalf of. My body is given on behalf of you. So it, it shows us not only that we are, we are the problem, you know, we're sin, so sinful that Christ had to die for us, but it also shows us that he died on our behalf, in our place. In other words, it shows us that he lived the life we should have lived but could not, and then he died the death we should have died in our place. That's what it means he died on behalf of us. He died for us in our place. He lived in our place and he died in our place. But not only that, he takes the bread, and this, 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 this will really get you if you think about this. He takes the bread and after giving thanks for it, he breaks it and says, this is my body given for you. Jesus, when he institutes the communion, communion the Lord's Supper, he takes the bread which he breaks Signifying his death, his torturous, painful, excruciating death on the cross. And he rejoices over it. Why? Because not only were we so sinful that he had to die for us, but we were so loved that he was glad to die for us. That is what communion reminds us of. It reminds us not only that we are not the hero of the story, it reminds us that Jesus is the hero of the story and he's a hero who loves us. He sacrifices because he loves us. Now, don't think that it was a trivial sacrifice or a small sacrifice. Jesus says blood became like, uh, the sweat became like blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was, he was overwhelmed. He was overwhelmed with sorrow. He said, God, Father, if it's at all possible, let this cup, this bitter cup, this cup of your judgment pass by me. This cup that I have to drink. But I realize that either they're going to drink it or I'm going to drink it. And then he says, yet not my will, but your will be done. In other words, for them I'm willing to do it. And that's why I can take the bread and break it and give thanks, knowing that it represents his body, which he will allow to be broken. His life, which he will give for us. So, it reminds us that Jesus is the hero of our story. Um, and, and once again, you know, not being the hero of the story takes a lot of pressure off you. <laughs> He's the hero of the story. I, I, I remember, and I've, I've told this story before, but on Broadway, they were doing this one show once. Uh, in, is, is Broadway where in America? Is it in New York? Or where, where's Broadway? Is it in New York? Uh, anyway, they were doing the show, and so they were rehearsing for the show, you know, and, and there was a deadline, you know, the, the show was going to launch in a, in a couple of weeks, and, and the deadline came closer and closer, the launch date. Um, you know, eventually it was just a few more weeks left, you know, not, not many, and, and things just weren't happening. You know, and everyone was frustrated and sort of getting angry at each other and upset because they were just feeling that this show, this play is not working. And eventually, in desperation, the director swapped... Um, sort of the leading lady and the supporting actress. He just swapped them around. And they'd, they'd been acting across one another so well, so, so, so much, that they sort of knew one another's lines. So he just swapped them around. And all of a sudden, it just started to happen. Everything just worked. And it just flowed. It just, there was that spark. There was that, that something that made it special. Everyone was like excited all of a sudden because they realized now it's working. And what happened was that the, the actress playing the leading role just wasn't a good enough actress to carry that role. And when they swapped, 
this lady playing the supporting role, she just fl- blossomed and came into her own, and, and everyone realized, wow, she's actually an amazing actress, and she could carry this role like the other lady could not. Even the lady who had been the leading lady, who had, had to give up her leading role in order to take the supporting role, recognized and said, well, she's doing a lot better than me. You know, I'm, I'm happy to, to play this role. And so often, we're like that. We're playing a role in our lives. We're playing sort of the leading role in our lives. And it's not happening. And we're frustrated. And everyone around us is frustrated. I just want to um, read you this quickly. If I can find it. Um, it says, um, Bilbo knew he was not the author, but the instrument. The pen does not become arrogant and proud over what is written on the page. It is honored to have played any part in the creative act. It is when we struggle to take control and resist the author's intentions, resist the author's hand, that we mar the story being told. Pride is not satisfied with anything less than the starring role. And what communion reminds us is that we need to humble ourselves, repent of trying to be the hero of our own stories. We need to Stop being the leading man or the leading lady and hand over that leading role to Jesus because he's the one who can make it happen. The play of your life will suck if you play the leading role. But if you hand over the leading role to Jesus, make him the hero of the story, it'll be a great story. Then also... Um, even though we don't write the story, um, even though we're not the hero of the story, we are active participants in the story. And that's what, why Jesus allows, uh, institutes a communion and says, take this bread, eat it in remembrance of me. In other words, in, even in the remembering act, you're an active participant. Take this cup, drink it in remembrance of me. This cup is the new covenant in my blood which washes away all your sin. In other words, you actively receive. Now, now, of all your five senses, you know, when you see something, it doesn't become part of you. When you touch something, it doesn't become part of you. Etc. You know, hearing, uh, smelling, etc. But when you eat something, when you taste something, when you eat it and swallow it, it actually becomes part of you. It's the one sense where the thing that you sense actually becomes part of you. And when we eat the bread and drink the cup, we are saying, Jesus... I'm receiving you. I'm, I'm experiencing you. I'm tasting you, but I'm receiving you inside of me. And you can now, as the hero of the story, live out my part in the story through me. And here the Holy Spirit is crucial because the Holy Spirit is the way that Jesus is present in us and through us. He didn't just leave and, and leave us behind alone and orphaned. He poured out His Holy Spirit And his Holy Spirit is the executive power of his kingdom rule here on earth. His Holy Spirit is the way in which he is personally present in us and through us to the world. The Holy Spirit is Jesus' spiritual presence in his physical absence. And he's the reason He gives us the power to actively participate and to represent Jesus, the hero of the story, in this big story. 
imperfectly represent, and that's why we need the blood to cleanse us on a regular basis, but represent Jesus in the story. What an honor. And then also, we do well to remember that that, and he lived happily ever after to the end of his days, only happens, it, it doesn't happen on a regular basis in this world. And even, even when it seems to happen in this world, and someone you know, is rich and healthy and prosperous and has a great family and a great accomplishments and all the accolades that this world would recognize and applaud, number one, they still die. And number two, for many of those, because life doesn't stop at death, Death is not the end. It's not, only, it's not even the beginning of the end. It's just the end of the beginning, to quote Winston Churchill or paraphrase him. Even if, if someone had a, the perfect life, unless their story was part of God's story, it will not have a happy ending. In fact, it will have a desperately unhappy ending. We do well to remember that our once upon a time only has a happily ever after if it's part of his story. Your once upon a time will only have a, truly have a happily ever after if it's part of his story. If you allow him to write into your sto- uh, you, you into his story. And... Um, Communion, therefore, reminds us not only that we're part of a bigger story, not only that God is the author of that story, not only that Jesus is the hero of the story, and that we are participants, active participants in that story, but it tells us what the end of that story will be. Jesus says, uh, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you, re- you remember, you celebrate my death until I come. Now, now, just think about that for a moment. You celebrate my death. How can someone who is dead come again? Only if they resurrected. In other words, even though Jesus' story was a hard story, a tough story, in many ways a tragic story and a sad story, it had a happy ending in in, in the sense that, that even though he died on the cross, he was tortured as an innocent man, as the son of God, he died but he rose again. Never to die again. And Jesus' happy ending can become our happy ending if we're in Christ. Because Communion is a specific kind of habit of remembrance. It's a covenant renewal ceremony. A covenant celebration and covenant renewal ceremony. Now, we know what that is because annually we have like, you know, wedding anniversaries where we celebrate and and sometimes we even renew our vows, renewing the covenant. Um, the Passover was an annual covenant renewal ceremony where the Israelites remembered the covenant they'd come into. A marriage-like covenant with the Lord where the Lord became their king. Because in those days, that's what you did. Uh, the king and the people made a covenant with one another uh, in order to make, make him king. David made a covenant with the people to become king of Israel. And God actually, made, at Sinai, made a covenant with the Israelites to become their king. That's why I was a little upset when, when they said we want a human king <laughs> in some ways. But in Jesus, the human king and the divine king come together. But it's a covenant. Communion is a covenant renewal ceremony. And what is covenant? Covenant is 
a means of becoming one with someone. When you get married, you become one flesh. What is legally true of you becomes legally true of your spouse. And what we remind ourselves is that what is legally and spiritually true of Jesus, because we're in covenant with him, has become legally and spiritually true of us. Jesus died on the cross, therefore we died on the cross. Jesus rose from the dead, therefore we have risen from the dead spiritually, and we will be raised from the dead physically. In other words, we will have our happily ever after but only if our story is part of his story. Um, and then finally, yeah, in fact, let me, let me, let me just end with this. Um, we do well to remember that even though we are participants in the story of which Jesus is the hero, the story that has a happy ending, and, 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 and we can live um, now in light of what Jesus so heroically did for us then in the past, and in light of what will become of us in the future. We can base our identity on Jesus, and, and that can be the motive. What Jesus did for us so heroically and sacrificially can be our why, our, the motive that drives us. And, and our, the future tells us what's, what's going to come of us. But, but we're not the only ones. We're part of a community for whom Jesus does that. I just want to read you this um, quote. This is from C.S. Lewis. Uh, do yourself a favor, you know. Get his, his sermon called The Weight of Glory. Have any of you ever read it? The Weight of Glory. No one. Have you read it? Wow. It's, it's one of the most amazing sermons I've ever seen. It's, it's free on the internet. You can just go and Google, you know, Weight of Glory by C.S. Lewis, and, and you'll find it for free on the internet. Um, but, but right at the end, he says, he says this, that being so, it may be asked what practical use there is in uh, the speculations which I have indulged. Uh, I can think of at least one such use. It may be possible for each uh, to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. It is, now, now, he's talking about the fact that because we're in Christ, and, and communion reminds us of this, what has happened to Christ, his glorification, will ultimately happen to us as well. We will be glorified. You'll be able to walk through walls. You will shine like the noonday sun because you are in Christ. Okay? You, you'll have a glorified body. You, you will never die. You will outlive the solar systems. The sun that we look up at, that's been there for so long, you'll outlive it. It'll pass away, but you won't. Okay? Uh, so he says... It may be possible to think uh, too much of our own potential glory after. It is hardly possible for, for us to think too often and too deeply about our neighbors. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back, a load so heavy that, it, that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to live in a society of, of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are, in some degree, helping each other 
to one or other of these destinations. It is the, li- uh, it is the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It, it is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. Uh, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our day dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There, is no, there are no ordinary people. You, you have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals. It, uh, it is immortals uh, whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or immortal splendors. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play, but our merriment must be of that kind which exists between people who have, from the onset, taken each other seriously. Not flippancy, not superiority, not presumption. And our charity must be a real and costly love with deep feeling for the sins in, uh, for, for the sins in spite of which we, uh, we love the sinner. No mere tolerance or indulgence which parodies love as flippancy parodies merriment. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object present to your senses. He is, uh, if he is your Christian neighbor, he is holy in almost the same way, for in him the Christ is truly hidden. And that is what communion reminds us of. That the people around us, just like us, are part of a big story of which God is the author, of which Jesus is the hero, of which we are participants, for which there is a happy ending. A story in which Christ in us is the hope of glory. It reminds us of all of that and a lot more. And what I want to hold before you um, this year is let us on a regular basis both in our small groups and in our families and in church. Let us regularly, and I want to ask the the ushers to bring the elements of the communion. Let us regularly take part in the communion. Let us understand what it actually means. And let us, as we are reminded, as we remember these glorious truths, let us stand in awe and let us allow it to actually change our lives. I just want you to close your eyes and and whatever the Lord laid on your heart, um, because as I was speaking, I'm sure the Holy Spirit was also speaking to you and we might have spoken different things to different people, but I want you to just respond in prayer to whatever you feel the Holy Spirit has been showing you. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Joburg. May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.joburg.com.